This is a historic meeting, the very first ever COP led by a vulnerable, small, developing country. And I'm sure you'll agree with me that it's good to have a country on the front line managing a major UNFCC conference. It gives us a unique opportunity for us to be able to advance and progress some of the key issues in these negotiations. The 23rd Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change entered the business end in Bonn today, with political leaders taking over from the negotiators. In terms of agreeing on a global program of action to respond to climate change, this year's COP is an important waypoint. Under the Fiji presidency that Mohamed Adao enthused about a moment ago, the conference needs to work out how to accomplish crucial tasks in time to reach final agreement at next year's climate conference in Poland. One of these is addressing loss and damage, irreversible climate impacts that it is already too late to prevent. Another is to make firm commitments for actions countries will take before the Paris Agreement comes into force in 2020, succeeding the Kyoto Protocol as the global program of action against climate change. And another task of this year's COP is to establish the procedures that will guide what's called the Talanoa Dialogue. The Paris Agreement calls on every country to say how much it plans to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by. The Talanoa Dialogue is the process by which these commitments are reviewed and added up. And then manage the argument about how to ratchet up these nationally determined contributions, or NDCs, until they collectively achieve what scientists tell us is needed to achieve the target, keeping global temperature rise to well below 2 degrees. Currently, the Paris pledges, you know, puts, gets, gets the world to 3 degrees uh, you know, global temperature rise. And without an ambitious ratchet mechanism, you know, an, a mechanism that gets countries back to the table for them to revise their NDCs upwards, it, it is the thing that needs to be advanced. And, and if you remember, that ratchet mechanism is what makes Paris Agreement a powerful tool. If, if you think about the pledges, they don't add up. But the fact that they actually include uh, this ratchet mechanism, it gives us that opportunity to be able to increase ambition on an ongoing basis. But what would be critical, given now that we have this dialogue being set up, is for the Fijians to be given a leading role next year so that they can be able to help deliver on, on the promise and the vision they've set out this year. It's not something we can leave in the hands of the Polish alone. And, and so in, in, in this second week, we need to be able to strengthen the hands of the Fijians so that they can play a role next year. And that role continues so that on an ongoing basis, we can be able to effectively design the dialogue to be able to increase ambition. Now, the third big issue, and this is something you'll all have had, is on pre-2020 actions to cut emissions and to provide support to developing countries. We all know that the Paris Agreement kicks, only kicks off in, into, into action in 2020. But climate change is happening now, and, and it can't wait for us to get our act together in 2020. For the poor vulnerable countries, and this includes the LDCs, the Africa Group, you know, the small island states, the thing that got them to agree to the Durban mandate that gave birth to the Paris Agreement and also helped them to sign the Paris Agreement in record time was this promise that developed countries will be able to actually deliver robust action before 2020. But we all know that this has not been delivered 
and time is running out. The end date for pre-2020 actions, including the Kyoto Second Commitment period, is 2020. And, and so the question is, if countries will not, hold to their, will not hold to their promises, then how can they be trusted? And we've had some of the developed countries, and I want to put this out there, saying that this focus on pre-2020 action is a distraction from the Paris Agreement. I'm sure you'll have, that, you'll have had that. But that is not true. Greater pre-2020 action is essential to buy ourselves time for us to be able to get the Paris Agreement coming in and getting its job done. It's also essential so that countries can be seen to be actually meeting their promises. If, if there's one thing we've learned over the years in this process, that this process is built on trust. And it's essential that countries are, are seen to be actually fulfilling their promises. Without the pre-2020 promises being fulfilled, I think it will undo the trust that will be needed to make Paris a success. And this is critical for developed countries to understand. This idea that they can give this perception that they're serious about increasing ambition, but not honoring and fulfilling their pre-2020 commitments, only, it's only going to undermine the trust that the rest of the world holds them and, and expects of them in, in, in fulfilling their commitments. African countries, along with most of the rest of the global south, are looking to the wealthy countries of the north for reparations. The burning of vast quantities of fossil fuels by industry in Europe and North America accounts for virtually all of the greenhouse gases now causing our world to warm up. Every country will have to transition to low-carbon energy sources and transportation. Every country will have to protect and expand remaining forests and adopt forms of agriculture that retain carbon in soil. But the argument is for common but differentiated responsibility. We're all in this together, but... Echoing the broader picture of colonial imperial history, every country has different responsibilities now if we are working towards climate justice. In the context of the UN negotiations over a global program, this means the countries that have built their current wealth and comfort by heating up the planet have already committed to making $100 billion a year available to help vulnerable countries adapt to climate change, promises that have not yet been kept. And beyond this, African countries and others are asking for significantly more than this to assist communities around the world who are facing impacts so severe that they simply can't be adapted to. The loss of land, of homes, lives and livelihoods that is already a reality for millions around the world. What's called loss and damage. I think that the first thing to note is that loss and damage finance is distinct from adaptation finance. And, and so cannot be seen to be eating into the 100 billion. The 100 billion was agreed long before loss and damage was agreed as an issue to deal with the inevitable impact that the world can no longer adapt with. And then the second thing to say is it can also be seen as something that can be addressed via development finance. The thing we have to recognize is that A, there is 100 billion and developing countries are not looking for getting a portion of the 100 billion to, to, for, for loss and damage. So what are they looking for? It's basically looking for money that is going to be additional to the, uh, to the 100 billion because loss and damage is actually additional to the mitigation needs and the adaptation needs. So that's the first distinction. But just like my colleague has said, the kind of money we're talking about to effectively be able to deal with the adverse impacts of climate change that can no longer be adapted to has to be 
has to come by leaving actually the fossil industry that has caused climate change in the first place. So the conversation around where these resources can be mobilized from has to ha happen in a formal process. And, and so the decision that parties are looking for, particularly the vulnerable countries, is a process. A process that is going to look at the, the, the loss and damage finance, but also the sources of loss and damage finance, so that that decision can be arrived, can be arrived at at the latter stage. And this is the stuff that can be blocked because you can block a conversation to address some of the very things you've acknowledged in Paris as a standalone article. The demand in Bonn is that, find, is that finding money for loss and damage becomes a permanent agenda item in its own right in the negotiations. So let's recall what was agreed in Durban. So there was a delicate Durban compromise. Those of you who have been following these negotiations long enough, where we had one track which was going to lead to the Paris Agreement, and that is what gave us the Paris Agreement. The second track, what was called the Stream 2, was meant to primarily help enhance pre-2020 ambition. In that package, of course, there is a, the Doha commit, uh, second commitment period, and there are two parts to that. The first part is, of course, the ratification, which is basically giving the amendment legal teeth so that countries can be seen to be actually taking seriously their commitment. But the second part, and this is where it gets critical, if you recall, and I'll give you the example of the EU, EU had a 30% reduction offer, which was conditional on getting a global agreement. And where we are now, the rest of the world have basically delivered on that part of the bargain. We have a global agreement. And what the EU is doing effectively but not ratifying and committing to help deliver the 30% conditional is basically choosing to harvest that of achievement, which we know they have actually attained, so that they can transfer into the NDC. If you take seriously the 1.5 commitment or the two degrees, well, it means all countries have to increase their Paris pledges. And now we have a situation where the Kyoto parties, the Kyoto Second Commitment parties, have overachieved their Kyoto targets, but have not actually revised so that they can be able to, you know, so that they can be able to match what is happening on the ground. So there's a difference between the legal commitment and the action on the ground. So if we are designing a dialogue which is effectively meant to help harvest the progress in the real economy, the way to start doing is giving it legal teeth and then uh, up, uh, revising your uh, NDCs upwards. But that is on the NDCs and the mitigation side. But there's also the finance bit and the technology and the capacity building. So you have to see, see this as a, as, as a support package, which the developed world sort of, sort of committed and Tracy referred to the quality of the 100 billion. And, and so you have to see this in totality of, 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 of a package which the developed world committed to, have not fulfilled, and now they're basically shifting everything to the post-2020 period. And we know if we're going to deliver the 1.5 Paris commitment, we have to fast honor the pre-2020 so that we can set ourselves on a good footing. So what this is doing effectively is undermining the pathway to increasing ambition. If you don't honor the pre-2020 ambition, the opportunity to actually have as great ambition for the post-2020 is going to be polluted. And that was Christian Aid's Mohammed Adao, brought to you by Tena Gusey here on CQT 90.3 FM in Montreal. The show is Amandla.